0: And, and I'm telling tales out of school a little bit, but not much. Oh man, look Ooh. at that! That's how close. That's how close. <laughs> Low. But but there it's was some fine. there was some political stuff going on.
1: You can't desecrate that.
0: But well, we said nobody was going to go there.
2: And and George, I just want to make sure that's okay for this to be published. We're going to be what you just said, even though that guideline's not out yet. Uh,
0: no, no, that little soundbite okay. do not publish okay. because. It's okay. gonna, oh, ca- w- okay. gonna I want to just
2: make sure. I wanna- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Freely Filter. The twice-a-month podcast that summarizes and pontificates on recent NefJC journal clubs. NefJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor. This podcast may discuss off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff. Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight, we just have Matt and Josh from The Filtrate and two special guests, Anna Bergner, assistant professor from Vanderbilt. Anna, you want to introduce yourself?
3: Sure. I am uh, Anna Bergner. You can follow me on Twitter at Anna Bergner. I am um, an assistant professor at Vanderbilt and the associate program director of the nephrology fellowship program there, and was a PI in the um, study we're about to talk about.
2: Yeah, so we're going to be talking about Fidelio, and Anna was a PI. Do you have any other COI besides being a yes, PI? Yes,
3: I also have um, consulted for Bayer, the company who sponsored this study for making educational material related to diabetic kidney disease.
2: Excellent. And the other special guest, a truly special special guest we have. I'm sorry, Anna, you're just, you only get one special guest. The truly special guest we have is Dr. George Bakras, a professor of medicine at the University of Chicago. Dr. Bakras, you want to introduce yourself. Uh, Sure. Uh,
0: Joel already did half of that. I direct the 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 Comprehensive American Heart Association Association, Comprehensive Comprehensive Hypertension Hypertension Center. Center. In addition to that, I've been involved with clinical trials for the last 30 plus years, NIH and industry. So uh, I have a fellowship program in hypertension, which recruits not only nephrology fellows but also fellows in cardiology and endocrine if they're interested in difficult to treat hypertension. So are you in the nephrology department at UFC or Well you, you, the- said, you said you wanted I- short pithy answers. Uh, no I'm actually I'm actually in the endocrine section. <laughs> And that's a long story Uh because when I left Rush, I was invited by the nephrology section to come over. But the chief of nephrology at the time had no interest in hypertension whatsoever. did not want to do anything I wanted to do. Endocrine wanted somebody to see all the diabetic nephropathy patients. So I said, I'll do that, but you let me do this. Done. And that's how it worked out.
2: Outstanding, outstanding. not an understatement to say that much of what we know about uh, diabetic kidney disease and hypertension comes from trials that have involved Dr. Bachris. It's been, it's a real honor Thank to you. have you here.
1: And then from the filtrate, we have Matt Sparks. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Sparks. I tweet at nephro underscore sparks. I am an assistant professor at Duke University, and I'm also a protector of the renin angiotensin system. And I promise to allow the other A into this chat.
2: We have, uh, oh, uh, Matt, do you have any COI here?
1: I have no conflicts of interest except for admiration and love of angiotensin. Dr. Waitsman, you want to introduce yourself?
4: Sure. So I'm Josh
1: Waitzman. I'm a
4: nephrology fellow at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston. I'm my fourth and what I hope to be my final year here, working uh, doing research in the laboratory. Of Martin Pollack. I treat hypertension just like everyone else, but not as much as everyone else on this Zoom meeting. And I'm just really excited to get to meet and talk with everyone about this really impactful clinical trial. As you might guess, I make a fellow's salary and have no conflict of interest because I make no money whatsoever.
2: I do have conflict of interest here. Also, I'm I was also pumped- Part of the uh, Bayer advisory boards and worked with Anna on helping Bayer craft some of their educational materials and also uh, consulted with them on their social media strategy for getting this information out. So conflicts everywhere for myself. Dr. Backers, we're we're going to be talking about this uh, finernone. Where when did you start getting involved with this trial? How long ago has this? So been I was again?
0: approached in uh, fall of 2013 by some senior people at Bayer to talk about diabetes, kidney disease, generically. And that was at the American Heart meetings. We talked, and then we started emailing back and forth. And then in 2014, we basically set up a meeting in New York to actually sit down and discuss a potential trial design and what have you. But in the meantime, that this is for the phase three I'm talking about. Prior to that, there was a phase two that we published that really looked at kind of a dose response curve on albuminuria, GFR, blood pressure, the whole ball of wax. That was published in JAMA in 2015. And that was really the start of what dose is going to be used, uh, what should we be aiming for. And then there's a guy named Peter Kolkoff, who is a bench guy, but just a brilliant guy, has been working in the area of non-steroidal MRAs for most of his career, has published a fair amount of work and more stuff coming that was really the underpinnings of the basic science for this. So, that's kind of the preamble as to when we started, but it was really late 2014, early 2015, when we already had the results of the phase two, to really sit down, put pencil to paper. And of course, Bayer had their own ideas, and we, as an executive committee, had our own ideas, and... Uh, unlike the federal government, we reached a compromise and off we went.
2: So, so a couple things there. So, one, you mentioned non steroidal aldosterone antagonist. This is our first one. Am I right? This, we don't have any other examples in clinical medicine of this type well, of chemical. In the
0: US, drug. that's true. Internationally, not true. There is a drug approved in Japan called Exerinone with an E, and that's interestingly approved for blood pressure. Um yeah, approved from blood pressure. Didn't have drama, but had a greater than five millimeter placebo subtracted change in blood pressure. And so they got it approved. Now they've got ongoing studies looking at microalbuminuria and other types of changes. There's another one in development, but that's at an earlier stage. And then there's phenarinone So there's actually there's four because there's yet another one. But again, those are an earlier stage of development. So
2: we're going to go. We're going to do a deep dive into the methods. But when I look at the methods, the one aspect of this study that's very different from just about every study is the very long run-in. And this is different than a lot of run-ins that we see, where they make sure the the patients can tolerate the drug before they see if it works, or different from the run-in we had in Sonar, in which they tried to find patients that would respond to the drug and just test them. Here, they use the run-in period just to maximize ACE and ARB. Where did that come from? Why, why did you put that into this? Well,
0: show? you have to understand that when we were designing this, I had come off sonar in the design committee. I would come off credence. And what I realized is everybody's giving lip service to, oh, you're on an ACE or an ARB. Well, okay, if you're on 40 of lisinopril, very different than five, and nobody was paying attention. So it wasn't just me. Rajiv Agarwal and a couple of other people on the steering committee said, hey, we need to make damn sure these people aren't real doses of ACE and ARB. None of this monkey business. The good news, the company said, absolutely, done. No back talk whatsoever.
4: And that's really why that was done. Yeah, can we clarify for a sec, just because I think this is going to be an important thing for folks who listen and read this trial. Could you compare the way in which ACE inhibitor and ARB doses were managed in something like Credence compared to the current study that we're about to talk about. I think in my head, I have folks who are on a stable dose for X number of weeks prior to starting in Credence. Is there any data on what relative dose of ACE or ARB that population was on when they started
0: into those trials? And so the answer is yes. The answer is yes, but I have not seen the granularity of that data, the distribution of that data. But it definitely exists and it can be resurrected The drop of a hat. I mean, it's in the computer. If that was the key. You hit the nail on the head. Are you on a stable dose? So you've been on 10 of lisinopril. It's a stable dose. You're in. Oh, but you're GFR 60. Yeah, so a little point since you're still a fellow. And since you guys are generally young. Lisinopril was the first ACE inhibitor that was, quote, once a day. But that's a bit of a lie because it's the first ACE inhibitor that met the FDA criteria that would make it once a day. The reality is if you really want good doses of lisinopril at a GFR above 60, it's BID. FYI. And by the way, all ACE inhibitors, if you've got GFRs of 60 are BID, except for two, which I bet one you've heard of, the other one you haven't, trandolapril and fascinopril. So I might as well do some teaching while I'm here anyway.
2: That's pretty good. So... GFR is greater than 60. All ACE inhibitors should be BID. They shouldn't. So are we
1: talking 40 BID for lisinopril?
0: No, no, no. You're talking 20 BID, doctor. Calm down. Calm down. Jesus. <laughs> My God. <laughs> By the way, there is a study that published in the 90s where they titrated the dose of lisinopril to 120 to see if they could normalize GFR in hyper hyper hyperfiltering hyperfiltering, type one diabetics. It turns out that the blood pressure dropped to eighty eight. And no <laughs> wait a no no albuminuria, but you could not fix the GFR. No By albuminuria though. Anyway. Nice.
2: Excellent. Oh okay, well let's let's get in let's get into this study. So this is a uh, a randomized placebo controlled trial of this this drug finerenone against matched placebo we enrolled patients with diabetic kidney disease we had two different GFR ranges so one GFR range was 25 to 60 if they had albuminuria from 30 to 300 milligrams per gram creatinine, and then a looser range of EGFRs from 25 to 75 if they had a higher degree of albuminuria from 300 to 5,000. Other than that, restrictions, pretty typical patients, they had to be type 2 diabetics and they had to be adults. And otherwise, they kind of took all comers from what I, could, what I could gather. Once patients were considered eligible, they had a screening period. It was from 4 to 16 weeks, I think, in which they brought everybody up to the maximum tolerated ACE or ARB. And they just kind of looked at their blood pressure and their potassium. After the run-in, there was another screening period in which they had to make sure their potassium was less than 4.8. And then they got enrolled. They were enrolled to one of two doses. Uh, patients with GFRs, I think, less than 60 got the 10 milligram dose and greater than that got the
0: 20 milligram dose. Well, they titrated up to that. I mean, they didn't all start at that dose, but there was a titration period. The other, the other thing, and maybe you're going to ask me this, but I'll just tell you now. Please. Where did 4.8 come from? was it? Where did 4.8 come from? Yeah, where's that hef- from? So it turns out... Now we published a review in seminars in nephrology, and this is going back to like 2016, and we looked at all the trials as to who was at risk for hyperkalemia. And it turns out there were two key variables, G less than 45 and K of greater than 4.8, if on a diuretic. And so that's why we said, okay, we know this drug's going to have some effect on potassium. It's not totally devoid. So let's minimize things. We're already going to GFR is really low. So let's take the K less than 4.8.
2: You guys didn't end up having a lot of diuretics. Only about half the patients uh, were on diuretics, at least at at the baseline characteristics.
4: Can I clarify with the diuretics, the risk of hyperkalemia is present if the patient's on a diuretic or the risk of hyperkalemia is lower? I'm I'm just used to
0: giving diuretics as part of that hyperkalemia management strategy. Okay. So these are trials like ASK where... We looked at people that were on diuretics and whatever, and we looked at the type of diuretic you were on as well. This was for the review, not for the trial. So if you were on an ACE or an ARB and you were on a diuretic, then we looked at what level of potassium you would have to start with, and then did you develop hyperkalemia as a result? So that's kind of how we worked backwards.
1: Do you think that um, individuals were less likely to enroll patients in a study like this if they... They have had hyperkalemia as well. Is that, would that also sort of, I think one of the things we're thinking about with this study is how much of this is the real world when you're talking about this study or how much of it is really getting group of patients that don't have a lot of propensity for hyperkalemia? Right.
0: Well, we told the investigators to use their clinical judgment. And so there's no question in my mind if I had a patient that I thought would qualify, but they've already had hyperkalemia three times. I'm not going to put them in the setting.
1: They might not be on an ACE or an ARB. And interestingly enough, just about everybody was, except for like seven patients or something like that, then then got on it.
2: Anna, as a PI, did, this, did, that, did that come across your desk in terms of selecting patients or was that kind of out of your hands that your research nurses went out and found these patients and you didn't? No, I'm serious. Like, that's how a lot of enrollment happens. Yeah,
3: Our research nurses really did the bulk of the footwork finding the patients, uh, but we, we always at our site contact their primary nephrologist to see if they have any concerns about the patient enrolling in the study. I don't remember because it's been several years now since we enrolled these patients, <laughs> but it's quite possible that one of my colleagues said, I don't think this patient should be in the study because they've had hyperkalemia five times. Or... But I think an important point Yay! is people could be on potassium binding resins. Uh, during the study, right? That wasn't an exclusion. Well, or was it? As former
0: President Nixon said, "I'm glad you asked me that question." Here's the deal: originally, I wanted no binders whatsoever. If you had to be in a binder, you're out. And then there was discussion, and they said, "Well, we could have a high dropout rate." Right I said, "Wait a minute! You just said potassium's not going to go up. How could there be a high dropout?" And they said, "Well, you, the investigator's judgment. So if the investigator wants to use it." Fine. Well, it turns out very few. I mean, we're talking very few people. So, this is the,
4: the folks' folks on potassium binders at enrollment as opposed to at, during the course of the trial.
1: Supplementary data, there's, there's more. I can't remember the numbers. It was. Yeah,
2: I'm looking at the numbers right now. Uh, potassium binding agents, at least this is the baseline data, it was 70 people in each arm. You're talking versus 2,800. The point is
0: that there were only a handful of people using Pteromir. I don't know that anybody used Lokelma.
4: Can you remind us when patiramer and Lokelma were approved relative to when the trial was ongoing?
0: So Pteromir was approved literally nine months before the trial actually started, and Lokelma was approved, I think, in 2018. So the trial was almost finished recruiting at that point.
1: Okay, I have the data. Okay. Um, so uh, baseline potassium lower agents... Uh, were about 2.5% in both groups, and then concomitant medications that are initiated after the study, and, and as you said, it's, you know, it's not like they were on it the entire time, but just any time they used it. It increased up to about um, 11% in the finarinone group and about actually 65 in the placebo, so everyone, everyone used more, and probably almost twice as much or a little lower than that in the finarinone group. Well... 300, 300 patients. It, the other thing that was
2: added a lot of, uh, were diuretics. Looks like about 42% of patients added diuretics after initiating the study drug. But that looks pretty well balanced, both finerenone and placebo. That
0: may have almost been a, um, uh, a blood pressure issue. As we talk about this, and Matthew, you're lucky Gordon Williams is not on the call. Because he feels that aldosterone is the second A as far as the RAS system goes. But the point is that, remember, these were people on maxed out AcerR, unlike the other trials. And given that, and given clearly that this drug raises K, I don't think anybody's going to tell you it doesn't. It'd be crazy. Still, when you compare, and I'll, I'll bring this up now, Rajiv has published... The HAMBER trial, which was a trial of resistant hypertension, published in the Lancet. And it was a pteromyr study. But SPIRO was used. The incidence of hyperkalemia in the placebo group in that study was 23%. And believe me, they were also on max acerarb. So if you compare 23% to 2.3% that we saw in Fidelio, it's pretty freaking dramatic. I want to make it clear, this is not your mother's SPIRO. No matter how you try to slice it, I mean,
2: important important differences with Amber though. Amber had definitely had the lower GFR than this trial. I think they were like
0: forty. They were, but well, just a minute. The GFR was lower, but it wasn't dramatically lower. The the I think it was like eight mls per minute, okay. so it wasn't like they were twenty. And- okay. This is 50. So,
2: and the but uh, the advantage to Amber is they were not all diabetics. I think it was only like two thirds diabetics or something here. And we know that diabetes is independent risk factor for hyperkalemia, and everybody in this study
4: has diabetes. Yeah. No, no, no question. No question. I swear I got like three type four RTA and diabetic board questions when I took the boards <laughs> three days ago. So that was definitely on. wow. Not that I'm discussing anything <laughs> that right. was on the boards.
1: Hey. Not that anyone here is affiliated with yeah, the boards either, true.
0: so. And not that this <laughs> is my reason no one can trace this back to me. Although, although <laughs> full disclosure, um, Josh, in 1999, I was on the boards. I was writing questions, <laughs> but that was then. Anyway, next, Okay. On. okay. So uh,
2: where we are in methods, we talked about the patients we're enrolling, procedure for the, the study, uh, we have not gotten to outcomes, and so the primary outcome was a composite of kidney failure, which is defined as dialysis or, ES, or EGFR less than 15, a sustained decrease in G- EGFR for more than four weeks of at least 40% or death from renal causes. So that's your primary outcome. That's what they powered the study to, fa- to, to hit also hit their key secondary outcome. That's how they labeled it, the key secondary outcome. And this, again, was another composite, a composite of death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, and hospitalization for heart failure. So it's kind of your uh, you know, cardiovascular death plus MACE uh, outcomes that we've seen in a lot of trials. And this is uh, particularly important because there's a sister study to Fidelio called Figaro, Larger than this one, in fact. Looking for cardiovascular outcomes, you know, because we we have a sense that this this these aldosterone antagonists are also good there, and we'll get that data in probably about a year or so.
4: So I, I had two uh, two questions on this, if I can yeah. jump in, um, just to make yeah. sure that we're comparing apples to apples. That forty percent reduction in eGFR is at the same. Uh, measure that folks use in Credence, same that folks use in Sonar, same that folks use in those other trials.
2: So it, it ends up being, this is the new FDA requirement for EGFR changes. Is that right? So let me,
0: let, it is. Let me, let me give you a perspective. When we were discussing this, I was pretty adamant that we use the Credence endpoint because to me, that was very valid. No one's asking any questions let's forge ahead. And some of the company people were a little squeamish and they said, you know, FDA wants greater than 40%. Why don't we put that in? And and there was an argument uh, back and forth. Obviously I lost, but to me, it, it really, it doesn't demean the steady, but it doesn't keep it as strong as it could have been. Now, having said that, and you maybe find this interesting, they did a hierarchical analysis, as you know. And the next thing on the hierarchical analysis, rather than being doubling of creatinine or whatever you wanted to do, which would have been logical, they wanted all-cause mortality. I told them, you are insane. On one hand, you're telling me you're not totally confident about the kidney, but all-cause mortality. Sure, bring it on.
4: It's the hardest of heart endpoints, right? That's what everyone wants to show. And the wicked
2: part about that is that if they had flipped them, they could talk about the doubling of serum creatinine because that does come out positive, but in the hierarchical outcome, it was down below total mortality. And so it-
0: So Joel, they didn't listen. I said that, I don't know how many times. I was an idiot, goodbye. So it ends up as
2: an exploratory finding of the study.
0: Right, I was just gonna say, I think nephrologists know better. but
4: I I think (laughs) the the other prying question that I think all of us have at this point is who is the opera fan that keeps naming all these trials? (laughs) I've got to know. Like, I think that's really
1: the key question our listeners want to know the answer to.
2: George, that's how weird our listeners are, because
1: he's right. That's what people are. During the tweet chat, people were actually playing opera music, is what I heard. (laughs) Oh, my God.
0: Well, I can tell you, I can tell you, one of the people on the steering committee is Herman Holler. And Herman loves uh, opera. And so he said that we should have been playing this in the background as it was being presented. But none of us had the name. This was Bayer all the way. And they thought that if they put an operatic theme to it, it would have more ambiance, uh, more imprimatur uh, to come across. I had nothing to do with it. I take no responsibility. But that's, that's what happened. So it's a company decision. Do we have a trial to talk about?
2: Yeah, we're almost done with the methods. We really are. So after after we talked about uh, the all-cause mortality, we talked about the traditional doubling of serum cranium that follows that. There's also a proteinuria outcome that follows that. And then each one of these is held up individually. Each one of the composites is held up individually. Power analysis, they had uh, adequate power to, d- to detect a 20% difference in their primary outcome. 90% power to detect a 20% difference. And that was going to require a, 1,068 events. They actually had more events than anticipated, 1104, which almost never happens in these trials, right? They always have fewer events than anticipated. They had more events, so they're actually able to detect the
1: 18% that they actually found. Are we getting better at constructing these trials? And uh, Because we've been doing, it seems like over the last like year, we've had so many. Is that why?
2: That's right. It's been a number of them that have hit more, more events than we thought.
0: I, I have to tell you, I have to tell you, as good as Credence was, the Bayer people, I don't know if they had Gestapo or what they did, but I got to tell you, what none of us, Rajiv commented as well, none of us have seen this type of follow-up recruitment, uh, making sure the appointments are done in any other trial. I mean, for me, this is best in show. And for adjudication, let me tell you, I think people were there with guns. They turned things around very quickly, honest to God. I'm, i I mean, obviously, I'm exaggerating, but... They were very impressive. The, the team had a set of investigators that they vetted. Now, we did have some fraud in the trial and we talked about it, but that was discovered thanks to the monitors and thanks to data that was looked at centrally.
1: And this was um, a few centers were enrolling people in multiple places. This, but- is, a, this is a
0: group group. In Miami, Florida, and apparently they've also, they've been indicted and involved in other studies for fraud. That Paul Richter called me. He saw that. Apparently, that center was involved in one of his trials. He wants to make sure they get sued and get put out of business and lose their licenses. He wants me to help him. I'm just telling you, this is how bad it's oh, gotten.
4: God. You should not come to the FJC podcast for medical advice or legal advice. You like that's <laughs> that's as well. correct. That's
2: correct. <laughs> and and us, any stories from the adjudication or the or the or the trial enforcement? were they uh, were they as thorough as uh, as dr backhurst was talking about
3: they they absolutely were um, no specific uh, stories they just were uh, very much on top of our site were quick to follow up and quick to answer questions if we had questions about patients um, and the protocol or randomization so uh, they were really good and I think it's important to note isn't this their bear's first really foray into the kidney world and uh, kidney trials so,
0: you are correct.
2: Anna, you want to talk about results? Uh,
3: sure. I'd love to talk about results. So uh, moving moving right along, 14,000 patients total underwent screening and finally randomized 5,734 patients of which 60 of them were prospectively excluded. That was those 60 patients that George was referring to due to the fraud situation. I've never seen that in a study, so I was very impressed.
2: Right? That is right. We, we read a lot of these studies. We don't see that mentioned.
3: Um, so if you look, at uh, table one of the study, the baseline characteristics were really pretty well balanced between the two groups. The patients were predominantly white at 63.3% of the study population and male at 70.2% of the study population. There was a fairly small number of Black individuals in this trial. Uh, The average EGFR at the time of enrollment was 44.3, and the median urine albumin to creatinine ratio was 852 milligrams per gram. All but 14 patients, I believe, at study entry were on an ACE or an ARB, Um, so pretty good use of ACE or ARB right from the get-go. And I think really important... given the the data that's come out since the study started, only 4.6% of patients were on SGLT2 inhibitors. And the use was very well balanced between the two groups. Patients were followed for a median of 2.6 years. And overall, there was really good adherence to the trial regimen at just over 92% for both groups. Uh, so I think that's also a pretty good and, and uh, probably maybe even a little bit better than realistic. How much do it how good of a job do our patients always do at taking their medicines? None of them are 100% certainly. And so now if we get to the really exciting part that we're all here for, figure one, um, we see the primary composite outcome of kidney failure, a sustained decrease of at least 40% in EGFR from baseline or death from renal causes occurred significantly less in those that received phenarinone at 17.8% compared to 21.1% in the placebo arm. Uh, that had a P-value of point zero. 001 uh, with an absolute difference between the two groups of 3.4% and a number needed to treat value of 29. Uh, well,
1: that swap is not here.
3: Why?
2: Well, the, the <laughs> problem with number needed to treat is it's highly dependent on the duration of follow-up. And
3: Absolutely. This is, the,
2: this is a drug that people are, we intend them to start and take it a lot longer than three years, right? And so that that number needed to treat would presumably shrink over time and it's not captured in that sim- in that simple number.
0: But to be fair, if you take that number, you can compare it because the follow-up for Credence was very similar. And you can compare number needed to treat there versus number need to treat here. I'm just saying, uh, you're right, but you can make some comparison.
4: I think if someone were being devil's advocate here, it would be that there's a different outcome that you're comparing to as well. So if you're comparing a 50% EGFR reduction versus a 40% EGFR reduction, it's hard to compare apples to apples. Yeah,
0: that's true. Good point. Good point. And I'm not arguing to compare.
3: So also in figure one, you have the key secondary composite outcome of death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, or hospitalization from heart failure. This composite occurred in 13 patient, uh, 13% of patients with phenarinone versus 14.8% of patients on placebo, which also reached uh, statistical significance with a p-value of 0.03. And I'm not going to tell you the number needed to treat here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, I like the number needed to treat. It's swapped. It doesn't like <laughs> it. So I'm happy he's not here. We can talk about it, have
3: fun I'm with gonna, it. I'm going to
2: stick with the epidemiologist on this one.
1: <laughs> hey he's the one that's not
3: here I, i'm just not i'm not gonna take sides i gave you it for one i'm not gonna give it you for the other we're balanced
0: <laughs> just one a minute just a minute and and you're gonna hear much more about this next year when Figaro is done let's not forget because i'm wasting my breath talking to primary cares about this and the government let's not forget That is, GFR is falling, your cardiovascular risk is going way up. So if you can prevent fall in GFR or slow it dramatically, you should theoretically reduce cardiovascular risk. So if you're doing one without the other, that's a problem. Right,
3: right. That's a great point. (laughs) That's smoke and mirrors
2: if you're not doing one without the other. Good point.
3: So if we move on to figure two, thinking about all-cause mortality in that hierarchical uh, outcomes, Um, there was no difference, as you predicted, George, in all-come mortality between the two groups.
0: But it's on the right side. Right, the trend is on
3: the right side. side. Going down the list uh, in table two, there were also no difference um, in hospitalization for any cause. But if you get to that secondary composite kidney outcome which is basically a doubling of serum creatinine or a sustained decrease of 57% in GFR or reaching kidney failure or kidney death. Right. And these are
2: the classic Ed Lewis, what do they call it? The cooperative the cooperative trial from the early 90s, the first time with the, captor, the initial captopril trials. This is what they defined as our renal outcomes, and we've been using it ever since. Exactly. Yeah.
3: Exactly, our traditional outcome occurred in only 5.9% of patients on finarenone compared to 8.6% of patients on placebo.
2: Now, am I right? The effect size here is greater than the primary composite outcome. This presumably more difficult barrier to cross. I'm just, I'm just looking at this. Uh, you know, it's a 0.76 uh, odds or hazard ratio versus 0.82. That, that's impressive. And in fact, in in terms of uh, size of effect, is is almost identical to what we saw in uh, Brenner's and uh, Lewis's uh, IDNT and uh, Renal, right? They're, they're about.
0: So full disclosure, I argued that that in the hierarchical testing be the next endpoint since I didn't want to put it in, and I was flipped the bird. So you know, what are you going to do? You know, Dad democracy make
4: this sound like a really rewarding process to go into these clinical trial designs and get sworn at and kicked
0: out all the listen, time. <laughs> listen, Let me let me tell you something. I started my career at the bench. It was a lot of fun. I had patients in papers in JCI and AJB. When you do the clinical stuff, you not only have to be a bit of a statistician and epidemiologist, but you got to know clinical medicine well, and you got to be a bit of a lawyer. And if you don't have <laughs> all that, you're not going to survive. <laughs> but the doubling of creatinine is a very validated. FDA's all over it. They like it. And the only reason they backed off is because it's a pretty high bar to hit. But if you hit it, you you know, you're in the right direction. I knew they, I knew they would hit that. All cause mortality, pushing the envelope. So, you know, but anyway, I just, I'm telling you this because I think You need to know, not that it changes anything, but I think you just need to know that makes me feel better. And
2: and I think the the even though they didn't hit significance on all cause mortality, the am I right that the direction it's headed is the where you want it to be going? It's on the right side of that line of identity, which speaks well for Figaro.
3: All right. um, So if you move on to Figure three, we can look at the urine albuminuria results, which show uh, significant. Decrease of 31% from baseline to month four in the finerenone group compared to placebo, and that difference was maintained throughout the rest of the trial. I want
0: to make a point that in every single study to date, except this one, whether you're talking about SGLT2s, whether you're talking about ACEs or ARBs, there was a significant reduction in blood pressure of at least 3.5 to 4.5 millimeters. Here, you're talking at most 2 millimeters. So that albuminuria fell independent. Of significant hemodynamic effects i think that's a huge deal and i've seen drugs that presumably have any inflammatory mechanisms killed because it wasn't as tight
4: as previous data and can i just dig in on this for a sec too because sure. i want to understand the difference here between veneranone and the spironolactone toplerinones of the world this doesn't look like aldosterone it doesn't bind to the same active site that aldosterone does and that it it acts i think what was the word that was used in the chat it was an inverse agonist that it causes suppression of the uh the mineralocorticoid receptor activity upon binding and it doesn't need aldosterone there to do that and the thought is that that leads to both classic like mineralocorticoid receptor inhibition as well as these anti-fibrotic properties that that folks are talking about.
0: Right, but you know, uh, what I think people forget is a lot of these fibrotic properties that are stimulated actually need a certain level of aldo, not primary iberaldo, but an elevated aldo. So if you block that, you actually suppress that. And, And there's a whole mechanistic argument that you can get into, which I won't because I don't know it like the back of my hand, but the data are there. So I think, and the other difference, the other diff, big difference is, I mean, a is pretty putsy as a blood pressure lowering agent. I mean, let's face it. Spiro, though, if you would have given Spiro to these people, you would have gotten an 8 to 10 millimeter drop in blood pressure.
1: And what's the difference in in, in why, why does that occur more? Because they both have the, a fairly similar potency for the mineralocorticoid receptor. Actually,
0: they the, there's a difference. There's a difference in the potency.
1: I thought finerenone is actually a little bit more. So- it is
0: a little bit more.
1: So why it seems like it, why would, why why not
0: the blood pressure effect? Because you're not getting all of the effects on estrogens, androgens, and all the others.
1: So all those other things, like gl- gl- glucocorticoid. Those off-target effects really contribute to the blood pressure. But I guess the thing is, they're not off-target. I mean, they're on target for spironolactone. <laughs> I mean, that's what I always tell people. It's like, this molecule targets all these things. They're on target. It's just not target for us.
0: Well... But I think because they're doing that, they're also associated with other side effects. And that's the, I think that's really that one of the key points. There is a paper, there is a paper where we get into this in great detail in the European Heart Journal. And this is published in the last three weeks. And um, Rajiv is the first author, but all of us are on it. I don't know if you saw it.
2: Yeah, we, we link to it. We link to it in the summary. Yep. Okay. So, but you know, this albuminuria is a forty percent reduction. This is at twelve months. It was forty-one percent reduction in albuminuria. I mean, that's something that I think uh, you know. If you talk to a nephrologist, we'd be interested in a drug that would drop your you know albuminuria by forty percent in your diabetics. Well,
0: the FDA, the FDA is definitely on board, and they've got they're convinced as long as you're getting a consistent thirty percent or more reduction over time, over two years, that that's a good thing, and you're probably benefiting the kidney. My point is you're getting this independent of
3: hemodynamics. That's a great point. If we move along in outcomes, I think an important outcome was actually buried in the supplement in figure S6 was the EGFR slope graph, which I, I'm just I they're <laughs> mandatory, but I think they're I think it's just so interesting that the pattern for all of these agents that are emerging as treatment for diabetic nephropathy. All follow the same trend with an initial drop in GFR followed by a, a much slower de- loss of GFR over time compared to the placebo group. You saw that in the SGL exactly. We saw it in SGLT 2s We saw it in finerenone, and then of course in the classic ACE and ARB studies.
0: So in the in the paper that we published in Ki, now this is with empa. Uh huh. If you look at the drop in GFR there, uh, it's a bit greater. In the beginning, and if you look at credence in the paper that Meg Jardine published, in Jason, the lower your GFR, the less the drop in that in that time period. So I'm not saying there's no hemodynamic effect. I'm just saying relative to the other agents, it's minimal. You're still. I wonder
1: it. if the hemodynamic effect could actually be occurring, not systemically, but more localized to the hemodynamics of the kidney. I mean, that's a possibility.
0: I one. fully agree with you. And I think it needs to be looked at. And you find me a micropuncturist, <laughs> and I'll kiss you. Good luck with that. Um, but I think the problem. Yeah, can- you can do that. You can do Good. I think. I think the issue. The issue is very important. By the way, you can thank Julie Engelfinger for having us put that in the supplement. I originally had it in the main paper, and they said no, no.
2: But and you know the thing I like about it is just the 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 number that I think it needs to be reinforced all the time is just what's the absolute drop in GFR. So these people are maximal a pretty good blood pressure control, pretty good glycemic control, four cc's per minute
0: per year in your
2: placebo group. That is ugly.
0: I think, well, I talk about it. I talk about it. And this actually came up in a Medscape conference we did about two weeks ago. And, you know, one of the issues was with all we know, SGLT2, Theneronone, glycemic control, blood pressure. You, you throw the kitchen sink at it. We've only been able to slow progression by about 60%. And so we still have things to go. Okay, but we're not, not done. done.
2: Not done. Yeah. And in fact, we are not done with the most important results. We got to we gotta dig deep into hyperkalemia. No, I mean, right. Because that, in the end, in the end, that's, that's what everybody's going to care about. And that's going to be, we're going to talk about this endlessly. So hit, hit us, Anna.
3: All right. So, um... Not surprisingly, we saw some hyperkalemia in the study, more hyperkalemia in the finarinone group um, than placebo. In figure three, you can see the change in serum potassium between the two groups. The serum potassium difference between the two groups, the, the mean was only 0.23, so not a huge difference, but, but, but that is just the mean, right? So there was an incidence of 21.7% of patients in the phenarinone group that had a potassium higher than 52 Five compared to only 4.5% in the placebo group. And if you look at a potassium higher than six, you saw that uh, at 9.8% of the finarinone, finarin, I can't even say the drug name anymore, finarinone group versus 1.4% of the placebo group. Definitely uh, significant hyperkalemia seen in the study.
0: So Anna, I would tell you this, uh, those data notwithstanding, if you look at permanent discontinuation of the study, it was 2.3% for the veneranone group and what, 0.9% for the placebo group, something like that. So if you then compare that to VA nephron D or uh, altitude, it was 50% or greater reduction. Fewer people were discontinuing because of that. I guess I would say this. If you are, if you meet the entry criteria for this study and you're a patient and you go on this drug, am I going to not check your potassium ever? No. Am I going to check it like in two days? Probably not. But I will educate you about low potassium diet. And I'm sure some of you have heard Matt Weir and I talk about this on the circuit. You could say, well, patients don't listen to that. Well, okay, fine. I'm still going to check you in one week to see how you're doing. And if I see you've crept up, then I know you're cheating on your diet. I mean, more than 0.2 or 0.3. And you're going to be warned. I have to tell you, I have some very 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 compliant patients i mean i gotta tell you and not only that their wife is there making sure they're compliant they've got gfrs in the high 20s i've got them on 12 and a half of spiral and they maintain their gaze at five four nine five but it only takes one day to fall off the wagon they went on a trip to europe they came back and the guy calls me says i'm not feeling too good i sent him to the er his k was 7.2 ouch so i, I blame me i'm aware i'm aware um this is not a drug. I think the primary cares are going to mosey up to, but I think the nephrologists, knowing what they know, should be more comfortable with it. It's not as bad as Spiro, for sure. Looking at the data, and by the way, I should tell you, they've just started a heart failure trial with this drug. But it's just—I mean—it's recruiting, so who knows? But I think, I think, if you look at it overall, overall compared to Spiro. And I would dare say, to it's safer, not devoid of problems, but safer, needs some monitoring, needs education. You're not going to get away without that. But if you do that, you're going to be able, especially in that subgroup, where BP is controlled, or that have heart failure, and you don't want their BP too much lower. You'll be able to use this, as opposed to Spyro, where you could bottom them out. That's one, two subgroups that I think, this would really benefit. Now, Are you going to rush to this drug? If their BP is 160, probably not, because you're going to need some muscle. But I think for a subgroup of people, I think this would be very good. What I'm hoping, since Joel brought up Figaro, is one-tenth, 10% of the recruited patients in that study have the same criteria as Fidelio. And I know one of the planned analyses is to take that subgroup and add that to Fidelio and do a reanalysis to look at all of these variables that we already looked at. Now, that'll be a year from now by the time you see that data. But I'm just saying.
1: The other challenging thing about these two studies, Figaro and Fidelio, is that you can't Google it without all this opera coming up first. I'm just, hey, I, I just put that out there. I don't know what to tell
3: you. You have to, you have you know? to Google Figaro CKD, or no, Figaro DKD, I think is, that D- that's D- what you have D- to Google. Fidelio. i've
1: Yep.
4: I've okay. made that mistake yeah, just
1: mm-hmm. uh know, yeah. call it a mistake I would call
3: no, it a, it was definitely a mistake
1: yeah. <laughs> we, we could you could go to it you could go and read about some op- operas and also about diabetes
0: drugs well let's bring Beethoven alive I'm mean, can I tell you I mean you know,
1: so
2: we've got R- real risk of hyperkalemia here. It's interesting, you guys in the intro reference a meta-analysis of adding aldosterone antagonists and CKD, and in that meta-analysis, the risk of hyperkalemia I think was threefold compared to placebo, which is exactly what you guys found, a threefold from a 1.6 to about a, a 4.5%. Look at the potassium's of six. So just very similar to the kind of, you know, this is what we know with aldosterone and, and antagonists, that this, they, these people get the hyperkalemia. I mean, this is just, it's hard at least to see here how much safer it is than our traditional aldosterone antagonists. And I guess that's not the point of this study. You're not comparing yourself. It's not a Spiro versus a Pheneronome. You know, put that on the list of studies we'll probably never see. (laughs) 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 Well, not
0: that we haven't asked. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Many of us have asked for a small study, small study, maybe a, a hundred people randomized, Uh, I don't think they're going to do
4: that. I think the other thing that comes up in looking at the data here, and I think you probably heard the the potassium questions a lot from folks, is that, is this a medicine we think could be approved in a world before potassium, more efficacious potassium binders? Would there be enough patients on these drugs if we couldn't get 10, 11, 12% of patients on a pteromir? Um, to keep them through the study period? And would we get the same signal of efficacy if those weren't there? I would,
0: I would say this, um, and I put a qualifier on it. I would say that if you're looking at patients with Ks, baseline Ks, one RAS blockade, diuretics, and their Ks less than four and a half, I would use this drug with impunity. I'd have zero problem. On the other hand, if you're in that four eight category or higher, I would have pteromir right next to me. Uh, or localma, either one, to uh, just in case. And I would be much more vigilant in those people. And so fundamentally, if you have a patient in front of you and you think, oh, I should share this with you because this is not in the paper. This was presented at ASN, but it's not published yet, but it's an abstract. There was a paper that compared low-dose SGLT2, low-dose finaranone, and then high-dose SGLT2, high-dose phenyrinone, on inflammatory markers in an animal model. They also looked at albuminuria. What they found was high doses of either drug it was pretty much a wash. But if you gave low doses of an SGLT2 and low doses of phenyrinone together, you actually got additive effects on some inflammatory markers. They, these were renal biopsy-type uh, findings. They were not, you know, outcomes. What does that mean in terms of clinical outcomes? I don't know, but I do know that the hyperkalemia is dose response. And so if we could get by with lower doses of finerenone coupled with an SGLT2, that may be amazing. Now, we did look at the subgroup of 4.5% that were on SGLT2s and finerenone. I guess the good news and bad news is the event rates were so low, you couldn't make any statement whatsoever. <laughs> So is that? Does that mean well, that that
1: is the elephant in the room? SGLT two inhibitors, uh, cost of medications, adherence. Uh, I mean, all these things. How can a patient afford all this? How you know? What's the order in which we give it? How does finerenone work? In well, it? just
0: a minute, uh, just a minute. First of all, you're not going to be able to write finerenone until probably second quarter next year. Number two, if you're Medicare, you can get it.
2: What we're doing though is we're we're widening the the possible therapeutic armamentarium. Like, the, you know, even though in any in any individual study, in any RCT, these drugs look very well tolerated. My experience with my hands is that I'm running into a lot of people that have intolerance to SGLT2 inhibitors, whether they don't like the polyuria, they get a yeast infection. I've had patients with orthostatic hypotension with it. So, you know, we, I would love to live in a world where patients all could get every drug. Uh, but that's just not the reality and having, and when they can't take the SGLT2 inhibitor, being able to offer them something efficacious, you know, and again, in selected patients that look like they're going to do well with it, it's just a win. And if you can get them on both, though, we don't have the data that may be a double win.
0: Yeah. Maybe, maybe I, you know, I use a truckload of SGLT2s and I'll, I'll share with you something. Uh, It's it.
1: You're a flowzinator. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) That that's what we call ourselves in, in this era. Is like, are if you woke up in the morning, look at yourself in the mirror, and don't see a flozinator, <laughs> you're doing it wrong. I'm
0: going to report you to Rob Caleb. Listen,
1: <laughs> listen. Here's
0: the here's the deal. Here's the deal.
2: Okay, do we do we have? Are we done with uh, Are we done with this study? I think we've really covered it pretty thoroughly
3: think so. There weren't any other safety outcomes really to report. The safety, uh, the adverse events were otherwise balanced between the two groups. And I think an important one that was balanced was AKI. I was worried we might see a little more AKI in the thinarinone group, but we did not.
4: Joel, the, the one question that came up in the discussion that I, that I saw was the subgroup analysis of outcomes. There was, particularly in high BMI patients, uh, an indication that the benefit was less strong in that group. And I
0: just wasn't sure if that was something that. Yeah. I, you know, the, the, um somebody else asked about that. Well, what we need to do is go back and look at the actual BMIs and see where the cut points were, because there were some people in that study that had BMI's well past 40, and you wonder about volume of distribution, you wonder about pharmacokinetics of the drug, were you really getting what you thought you were getting? People forget about that. And I'm not saying that's the answer, but that's definitely the first place I would go to look to try to answer that question.
2: So uh, just in summary, what we have is a vi- uh, li- literally one of the largest, if not largest, diabetic kidney disease uh, trial ever done with an outcome focused on kidney disease and uh, the largest here we go let's go we'll yeah. get some applause yeah, i mean, on that. this is the this is the time that we live in that we are now getting really large trials done on diabetic kidney disease focused on kidney outcomes. This is multinational placebo controlled uh well executed study, two and a half two point six years of follow up Finerenone versus placebo. We see an eighteen percent spread in their primary outcome, which is uh a uh, 40% uh, drop in EGFR, uh, death by renal cause, or uh, ESKD, defined as a GFR less than 15 or dialysis. And um, a nice 18% spread there. Uh, they, did, they also had a secondary outcome. They had a lot of cardiovascular stuff. They did hit their outcome there. And then no difference in total mortality and an exploratory outcome of the classic Renal outcome, which was doubling the serum creatinine uh, death or dialysis, and that one uh, had about a 25 percent reduction. This comes along with significant reduction, about a 40 percent reduction in proteinuria at the expense of uh, a significant re- or a real risk of hyperkalemia. Uh, and this is despite the fact that they did not enroll anybody who had a potassium greater than 4.8, which is a pretty nice co- a safety margin to begin the trial with. Uh, they still, despite that, they still found uh, a real uh, about five percent of patients, four percent of patients having potassiums greater than six at some point during the trial, and so. Uh, but uh, you know, another another successful drug in the treatment of diabetic kidney disease. Did, did I get that right, George?
0: You got it right. By the way, those people with a case of six, they were all located at pizza parlors. So, <laughs> you know, I think. <laughs>
2: <laughs> call these uh, uh, tubular secretions. Okay, I'm going to go right now, give you time, a little, little time to think about it. So what I want to point out is we have applications are open for the Nephrology Social Media Collective. This is a one-year internship where you get to work with the crew of Freely Filtered plus a, 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 an outstanding uh, social media faculty. You're going to learn how to write blog posts, tweet like an expert, Create visual abstracts. We're adding podcast. a podcast rotation. We're going to teach everybody how to create and edit their own podcasts. It's gonna. It's people. We get. We take twenty eight people a year, and people absolutely love it. These people go on to take uh, uh, leadership positions all over nephrology. We're seeing them. Well, Doctor Doctor uh runs uh, the American Journal of Nephrology. And he, uh, and we have graduates from our program that are creating visual abstracts for AGN and nephron and CJSON and AJKD. All of those, all of those, uh, visual abstract designers are coming from the uh, nephrology social media collective. So, if this is something that interests you, there'll be a link on the website to follow and put in your application. So, we want to get this thing started and we'll. We'll announce uh, who's going to be in at the end of January and get this thing started in February. It'll be our, I think, seventh year doing it this year. Anna, you got a tubular secretion?
3: I can't really think of anything exciting right now, except for I'm just counting down to uh, Nephrology Fellowship Match Day and what, two, two weeks now, week and a half, something like that. So that
2: is going to be super exciting. I am I'm also very excited about that. I'm I'm pumped.
0: Wait, I got to ask you a question. The, the head of the Endocrine Fellowship told me that this year, for some reason, was an out of control, outstanding year. She thought she was doing cardiology fellows. The quality of the people that applied were just so good.
2: The quality of people applying was way higher than we're used to. Excellent.
1: It's about... Well, we always have good applicants, Joel. Come
3: we, on we saw more. We saw more good applicants.
1: I mean, back when Josh was applying, that was the worst year. Can I I jump in? (laughs) They've improved significantly since then. It was. No, it
4: really was. I was like the bottom of the nadir of the worst of Nephrology Fellowship applicants in America ever. And I'm gonna ride that to my grave and that is fine. If I can give like insight off the record here on this though, I'm on the, um, the ASN data subcommittee that's part of the workforce and training committee. I don't know if you guys have heard about this data about like what the applicants look like so far. But I think in the sheer number of applicants, like people applying into nephrology, we're seeing a 25% increase over previous years. It's 20 to 25, like people, and then a significant, even higher number than that number of applications that those individuals are submitting. Right. But that that's because the cost of applying went down because you don't have right. to travel. And and there's no, you know, I, I don't think we know if those folks are applying in multiple specialties or not. So some of them may actually be cardiology applicants who are applying in something else. But I think there's there's hope that that the numbers look better, that there are more applicants this year. But it's such a weird application cycle. It's very hard to compare
0: so josh let me tell you and i'm thank you thank you for saying that because two of my former fellows were dying to be cardiologists but as a backup they applied to nephrology and i have to tell you the programs that got interviewed in nephrology were amazing the cardiology programs they got at best were low middle so i think they're, they're starting to find fallbacks.
4: I, I'm hopeful that turns out well for us. I, I worry that if we get folks in nephrology who are not excited about being a nephrologist, there's nothing like the first year of Nephrology Fellowship to ruin nephrology for you if you didn't like it coming in. And so that that's the part that, that I, I have a little bit of pause about, but I'm, I'm hopeful for sure. And I think we're all hopeful about seeing those kind of numbers.
1: Potassium binders have helped a lot, though. Well, they, well, I got news for you. They've helped a lot in <laughs> cardiology, too.
4: <laughs> everyone knows everything that I know, and I'm the worst nephrology fellow class in history. That's the word. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, I do you thought. have any tubular secretions? You know, I think that the thing that I would secrete here, and I'm sure that everyone has already uh, absorbed this by now, are the articles by Ed Young in The Atlantic on the state of the COVID-19 pandemic. He is such an outstanding writer. He is such great sources, and tells the stories that I think we as healthcare workers are experiencing here in a way that very few other people are getting right. I think there are people who are getting it right. I think he does a nice job of, of sending us to those people. Um, but if you're following us on Twitter and not following Ed Young and reading, uh, the most recent article was called, No One Is Listening To Us. Um, as we head into what looks like the third wave of this pandemic, it's an incredible read, and and although it will make you feel sad about the direction we're going, and I, I think it's really important that we all stay engaged. George, you got it. You got anything for
2: us?
0: Our less than thirty GFR paper is coming on Jason. No, this yes, is the no, no. This Creedence. is less than
1: thirty. Uh, uh, Credence, they t- they took the yeah the individuals that like came in right at thirty, but then they dropped. And it's yeah, and and I think that and the side effect profile was was, was no worse than the other group, which is that that's a really important um, piece of information.
2: And the the big fear was that this low GFR blocking SGLT was not going to have any kind of hemodynamic
0: effect. And it no, in fact, it it goes up. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. It's amazing. Well, I understand, but I'm just saying it's garbage. And And there's actually another paper in NDT that shows the same thing, that if your GFR is at 30, the GFR doesn't fall. It goes up.
2: Excellent. This has been great. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, everybody, uh, Anna, Josh, Matt, George.
1: We're not done oh, though. You Matt. Know they can leave. But we have to go okay. through and read some <laughs> Matt, of our reviews. What,
2: what, is, what are people saying about Freely Filtered on the web?
1: We're getting a lot of reviews and, and thanks to everyone who is taking the time to fill these out uh so let's uh, uh the first one um is from someone by the name of impact factor and they give us five stars and they title it renal exclamation mark <laughs> and they say uh <laughs> i i listen to every podcast great balance of methods renal fizz and jokes so thanks a lot impact and um or dr factor whatever your name is um we have another one from um, C. W. Gillahan, five stars, and it says "Best Renal Podcast Around." And it, it starts out. This is this is a little bit lengthy, but I think it's interesting. Hi, my name is Matthew. <laughs> um, the <laughs> the renin, pronounced like the bird renin, man, Sparks. And all I have to say is that the Renals rule. That's right. I said Renals. You know, those two organs situated halfway down your back? <laughs> Some say they produce urine, but we all know what they really produce is homeostasis. Anyways, those are your renals. And listen, renal disease is bad. I conduct renal research to help prevent renal disease, and I read renal journals to learn from my colleagues how we can keep the renals healthy. I contribute to this renal podcast here to spread the renal gospel and hope that you all are, are learning from this. We filtrate. I also invite you to join us on renal. I mean, nef JC on Twitter. So that's actually from a resident at NYC. And they said, don't worry. Uh, they're spreading the kidney gospel at their residency program. So, uh, that is, um, that, that is a, a five-star review right there. And there's another one from Peter, uh, Kedis. Five stars, great podcast. I'm an internal medicine pharmacist in North Carolina. I'm not exaggerating when I say this is my favorite medical podcast to listen to. I appreciate the thorough review of recent clinical trials and the many clinical pearls you provide. Most important, I love the humor that you add to the podcast. Thank thank you and don't stop producing. So five star there. So just a just a, a couple uh, snippets of what, what our fans are saying. And if you want to hear me say renal, All you have to do is drop it on the review. Outstanding.
2: Thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks a lot, guys. Everybody take care and uh, have a uh, good holiday season.